for me to sort of get back in the saddle, my first instinct, of course, was to go back into the the Gospels. I'm eager to get back in there. But I recently heard excerpts from a, a message, and it made me want to remind ourselves of what the Bible really is, what we believe and teach about the Bible. We are, after all, called Pilgrim Bible Church. We often joke that Bible is our middle name. We want to make sure that the Bible is the, the center of what we teach around here. There's no shortage of opinions. If you want opinions, you can go on Facebook or Twitter or go on TV, cable news, whatever. There's lots of opinions out there, but we want to be a place where we can say, thus saith the Lord, and make it worthwhile for you to come and actually put you under obligation as well to hear what God has to say. Uh, there are also many clubs you could be a part of. If you wanted to go to the Elks Club or whatever place these places are, you could have no end of uh, what the world might call fellowship or just getting together. But we want to come together around God's word. That's where the power comes from. That's where the authority comes from. That's where the change will come from as God uses the spirit through his word to transform us from glory to glory. Each week we come here and we read the Bible and we sing songs inspired by the scriptures. We hear a sermon based on a Bible passage, but it's good to be reminded of why we do this. There are many challenges in our day, as there have been throughout history, as to the truthfulness and authority and even sufficiency of scripture. What's disappointing is that while we expect to see the world attack the scriptures to get attacks from outside the church, in church history, there have always been those inside the church who compromise or even reject a high view of Scripture. And sometimes it's very subtle, and sometimes it's in the guise of a Bible-believing evangelical. Now, the message I heard recently was from Andy, Andy Stanley. You might know him, know of him. He is the son of Charles Stanley. A lot of you may have heard some of his messages in the past. And Andy Stanley is the pastor of a megachurch in Georgia. And his comments were made a few years ago that I heard, but he cast doubt on the Bible in some ways that we would associate with liberals of the 20th century. And I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, and I'm not here to beat up on Andy Stanley, but this is representative of, of some trends in the, the broader church. And so I want us to be aware of it, and then we we're able to uh, counter it as, as we look in the coming weeks as to what the scripture really is and how we understand it and how we can... Uh, how we how we know how, how we how we got the Bible? That'd be another portion of what we'll do. So Andy Stanley talks about those who grew up in the church as he did, and he says, "quote Because the Bible was presented to us as a book, which, which it is not; because it was all presented as one holistic thing, which it is not; because we never even understood where the Bible came from, it was a house of cards. So all someone had to do was come along and pull away a couple of the pieces, a couple of the foundational pieces." And suddenly the whole thing comes tumbling down. And so we went off to college and discovered that even though the Bible was sacred, it wasn't scientific. Even though it was something to appreciate, it wasn't necessarily something that was factual. Even though there were stories in, the, here, in here, that is the Bible, that were inspirational, they weren't necessarily true. And then we experienced life, and there began to be more and more distance and more and more daylight between what we experienced and what we grew up believing. He also said in that message, the Bible says, in quotes, the Bible says, was never intended to be the starting point for the Christian faith. 
and then he speaks in the voice of someone who had an early sort of faith as a child, maybe grew up in church, but is now an adult with no faith, and he continues, I grew up with the Bible says, and I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you about my job. Let me tell you about my divorce. Let me tell you about my children. Let me tell you about my unanswered prayer. If we're going to try to restart my faith with the Bible says, the Bible teaches, not interested. And more recently, he tweeted this. The Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty disturbing things for a supposed evangelical to say, especially one with such reach. And forgive the lengthy quotes, but this sort of thing isn't new. Even from the beginning, there have been challenges to God's word. Even in the garden, the first words out of Satan's mouth was, has God indeed said? And it's been the case all the way since then. And as I thought more about this this message I heard, these quotes I heard from Andy Stanley, I was reminded of a couple of series I did a long time ago, 2009-2010, and I thought it would be worthwhile to revisit them. First, we'll talk about the doctrine of the Bible, and then we'll do a series on how we got the Bible as the 66 books we hold in our hands today. Now, if you've spent any time looking at doctrinal statements or systematic theologies, talking about the various important areas of theology, many of them begin with the doctrine of Scripture, including the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which we have some copies of the back there. The first words of the confession are, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Let me repeat that. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And only after the section on Scripture does the confession turn to the doctrines of God. Now, you might think, well, God is more important than his word, isn't it? God is more foundational than Scripture. Why do we, would we put the, doc, the doctrine of Scripture first? It's, it's because only in the Bible do we see all God wants us to know about himself. And so if we say, we sort of start with God, how do we know who God is? How has he revealed himself? Well, he reveals himself in many ways, but we want to get to the ground truth of who he is. Psalm 19, verse 1, famously says, The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So God speaks, in a sense, we see God's glory in his creation. Romans 1 says this, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We look at verse 20, it says, His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen. We can see God's power and his divine nature in creation. Creation shows us there's a God and that he is powerful and glorious, but nature can only show us enough to condemn us, not enough to save us. We can't look into the the cosmos. We maybe can see that God is good, God is creative, God is beautiful, but we can't see that God is a saving God. We can't see the fact that God sent his son to die for our sins and be raised again. Those things are not visible in creation. So creation can tell us a lot about God, but 
what we see about God condemns us because we don't believe. We don't honor God or give thanks. Now, how could God communicate to us? He could have given us our own individual angel to visit us and teach us what God wanted us to know about himself. Or he could have spoken his word to us in a dream. Maybe all people could get some dream from God, even as people did in the Old Testament, for example, or even in the New. Or God could have used any number of ways to communicate to us. Maybe God could have waited many years until the electronics revolution and spoken to us over our computers or over television. But he has chosen to reveal himself through his word. As I said before, without the Bible, we would know about God the Creator, but not about God the Savior. So the doctrine of Scripture comes logically before the doctrine of God, because it's only through rightly understanding Scripture that we learn all that God wants to teach us about himself. Now, this morning is just an introduction, and as we study the doctrine of the Bible, there'll be several terms we'll dig into week by week. And some of those terms are revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, power, authority, clarity, and sufficiency. And we'll just briefly look at those right now, if you didn't get them all. First of all, revelation. Revelation. Not the book of Revelation at the end of your Bibles, but revelation in a general sense that God reveals himself to his creation. And by his revelation, he shows us who he is and what his will is for us. And he reveals himself to us in many ways, but especially in his word. As we saw before, God reveals himself in creation. He reveals himself in relationships between people, but he reveals himself especially in his word. The next term we'll look at in a few weeks is inspiration. The term inspiration, we, we see in our Bibles in 2 Timothy 3.16. I think you know this one. 2 Timothy 3.16. And many English translations say something like, all scripture is inspired by God. Even going back to John Wycliffe's Bible in the 1380s, he used something like this, all scripture is inspired by God in Tyndall's version from around 1522, at King James and so forth, all the way down to today's times. All scripture is inspired by God. It's interesting here, we tend to think of the NIV as being one of the least literal ones around, but in this case, at least in the, the 1984 NIV, it says, all scripture is God-breathed. And that's exactly what the Greek word says. So, in this case, the NIV is more literally translated than most of our English translations. So, all scripture is breathed out by God. We have a similar idea in Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, verse 20, Peter says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So in Second Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Second Peter says that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so this, there's this spiritual aspect to these writings that we, we have. Inspiration is the way God worked in human writers to produce his word. And it's not like some religions where this is sort of an automatic writing. God sort of takes over somebody's uh, body like, like demon possession and forces them to write something. 
or always speaks direct words on the page. It is true that some writers were given the exact words to say, thus saith the Lord in many prophetic books, for example, in particular. God says this, write this down. And so they are quoting God directly. But there are portions of history written down by chroniclers. We've seen that in Second Kings recently. Uh, we don't see a lot of thus says the Lord in those passages unless we're getting quotes from Elisha or other prophets. But a lot of it is just history. Men sat down and wrote history. Uh, David, King David, has a song in his heart and writes it down and it becomes a psalm. I don't think David sat down and said, Lord, just write through me a psalm. He just had a song. He was thinking about God as a shepherd and he writes Psalm 23. And it, be, it becomes part of God's word because God worked through David, but again, not in an automatic way. Solomon, he assembles many wise sayings and proverbs and even uh, Ecclesiastes. He, he thought about these things, maybe even borrowed some from other cultures, but he wrote them down in the book of Proverbs and they become part of God's word to us. Uh, Jeremiah, as he sees the destruction of his beloved city, Jerusalem, he's not thinking about writing scripture then. He's just lamenting. He's weeping over Jerusalem. And as he as he weeps, as he thinks, as he pours out his heart before God, he writes, and that writing becomes lamentations. Luke, we talked about this in the past many times, Luke diligently researches the life of Christ and the early days of the church. He's an early church historian, and he interviews many eyewitnesses, just like a, a reporter might today, and including he has his own experiences with the Apostle Paul, and Luke's work becomes the books of Luke and Acts. So again, Luke is a historian. Uh, Paul has issues with various churches and writes letters to them. And some of these letters are parts of the Bible and some are not. We know that there are some letters that Paul wrote to churches that were not inspired scripture, but many of them are. And then one last example. John has many visions of end times and writes them down in the book of Revelation. So from beginning to end, the Bible is not one mechanism by which God communicates to his people through his prophets, say, but in all these different ways of communicating, they are all inspired by God. They are all men who are moved by the Spirit who spoke from God, and it's all God's Word. In all these different ways, all these different authors, God superintends their writing, so it's exactly what God wants them to say. So, revelation, inspiration, next, inerrancy. Inerrancy. This is the doctrine that holds the entire Bible in its original manuscripts is completely without error. Now, some teach that the Bible is infallible but not inerrant. It sounds kind of confusing. It's infallible but not inerrant. That means that where the Bible speaks on matters related to faith and practice, it's correct and useful. But it's not necessarily correct in historic or scientific details. That might be where Andy Stanley is coming from. Maybe some of the history is not right. Science isn't right. They didn't know about evolution back then. They didn't know about the, the great universe we have, we understand today. Didn't know about biology or various things. But when it comes to matters of faith and practice, that's where the Bible really shines. That's where we can really rely on the Bible. But then the question is, how do we know if, if some parts of it are wrong, are in error, or false, how do we know which parts those are? 
we end up sort of picking and choosing what we think is really God's word or most solidly God's word. This is a clever way that more liberal theologians have used to keep on the good side of people in the pews without having to look like fundamentalists to their academic brethren. So you may have gone to churches like this in the past. I know that my, my father did. He was a Methodist way back. And there were, there were men in the pulpits who didn't believe in the deity of Christ, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe many of the core doctrines of Scripture, but they would say things like, the Bible is infallible, but not inerrant. They wouldn't say, but not inerrant. But they would be able to say with their lips, the Bible's infallible, but what they meant by that was that it's reliable in a lot of areas, but not necessarily completely God's word or completely without error. And so, as history goes on, we need to fine-tune our descriptions of what the Bible is so that we can counter those who who deny core elements of Scripture. In opposition to those who say that the Bible is not inerrant, we could look at Psalm 12.6, which says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. Psalm 19 also. Let me read verses 7 to 9. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled or stands firm in heaven. How is it that a document with errors could be forever settled in heaven? And then Jesus, of course, had the highest view of Scripture of anyone we know about, uh, we read about in Scripture. He says throughout his teachings that he, he bases what he teaches on the Scriptures. For him, that was the Old Testament. But he says in John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that is without qualification. Jesus believed in the inerrancy and the infallibility, the the full nature of God's word as God's word. And again, we'll look at inerrancy more in a few weeks. So revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, next power. Power. The word of the Lord has power that no other writings have had do have or ever could have. Let me just read a few verses that you, I think, know well to get this idea of the power of God's word. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel that we see in God's word is the power of God for salvation. Any other books? I, I like lots of books. Any other books that you read besides the Bible? Are they able to be the power of God for salvation? Not at all. Even even the the ones that the world um, rightly uh, praises as being uh, wonderfully written, very powerful in your lives, they can't save you. First Corinthians one eighteen says, "The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God." The word of the cross is the power of God. Hebrews 4.12 
The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Again, no mere human work could ever do that. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we see that often. If any of you have been unfortunate enough to try and start certain discussions on Facebook or wherever it might be, social media, or with just friends of yours, unbelieving friends, and they'll say, what do you think about this issue of the day? And you say, well, my opinion doesn't really matter that much. But the Bible says, contra Andy Stanley, the Bible says, and they say, what do I care what the Bible says? For them, it's foolishness. Exactly right. And so... That doesn't mean we change our arguments. What do we have? If it's if it's not the the Bible says what God says, then my opinion is no better than anybody else's. Maybe I'm a better debater. Maybe I know more about certain things. Maybe I don't. If, if I can argue somebody into accepting my position, but they're not really changed by the Spirit of God through His Word, then I haven't really won anything, have I? I may have be able to um, put a notch in my my. My, my gun, my debating gun, and say, yeah, I won their argument, but have that brought them any closer to Christ? And so, if we don't have the Bible says, if we don't have the says the Lord, we have nothing. We have nothing really to offer this world except our opinions. Second Timothy 3, we saw this a little bit earlier, but it's interesting to go back a verse, 3, 3.15 to 17. Paul mentions the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You need salvation, you need wisdom. Well, it's the sacred writings. And again, for Paul, that was the Old Testament, but now it's the entire uh, Word of God, old and new. That is what's able to give us wisdom that leads to salvation. You can read many wise books, perhaps, many books of Proverbs. Uh, the latest bookseller uh, may have the the number one uh, purchased book in, in the nation with all this good advice, perhaps the leading psychologist or something, but that's not the wisdom that leads to salvation. And it says, of course, also that this is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So if you want to be saved, you need God's word. If you want to be equipped as a Christian for every good work, if you want to be sanctified to become more like Christ... Again, you can. there's lots of books in a Christian bookstore. But what you really need, ultimately, is the Word of God. That equips us for every good work. That, it, that gives us a wisdom for salvation. It teaches us. It reproves us. It corrects us and trains us. That's the power of God's Word. So revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, power, next, authority. The Word of God has authority because it's God's Word. It's not man's Word. It can tell us what to believe and how to act, and it can judge us if we don't act in the way that it tells us to. So when you hear the Bible says, when you hear thus says the Lord, 
you had better listen. Wayne Gruden Gruden says this, The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to believe or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve, disbelieve or disobey God. So if I am going someplace and I tell my children to do something, it says, before, I'm going to come back later. When I get home, I want this to be done. And I tell them directly. That's my word to them. And if they disobey that, they're disobeying me. If I write it in a letter or an email or a text and say, do this before I get home, uh, they, if they disobey my word, my written word, my electronic word, or my spoken word, they're disobeying me. In the same way, if God gives us his word, he's not speaking to us directly uh, in our ears, but he speaks to us through his word. If we disobey his word, we are disobeying God. If I disobey the latest bestseller, I disobey something from written by the, the latest pop psychologist, doesn't really matter, does it? But if I disobey God, that's a serious thing. God's word has authority that no other book has or ever could have. And remember, I read earlier, Hebrews 4.12, God's word is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And the, the term judging implies authority. Uh, if a judge has no authority, somebody judging you, then it doesn't matter. But if a judge has authority, the judge has authority to put you in jail or to fine you, that's something. God has authority to uh, to punish you forever in hell. God has authority to to discipline you. God has authority to speak to you in a way that demands obedience. So God's word has authority. Next, God's word has clarity. God's word has clarity. And scripture is meant to be understood. You might say this, that God doesn't mumble. And if God has spoken, he is able to communicate in such a way as to be understood. And not only that, he demands that we listen and understand. It's not enough just to to hear it, but we must listen to it and understand. There's many verses we could go to, but listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So the things that Moses told the Israelites were clear enough that he expected them to teach their children to discuss them frequently. If you've studied um, some of the sort of mystery religions, uh, the Gnostic religions, the word gnosis has to do with to know. And if you are in these religions, you start out as um, a neophyte, but as you grow, you you learn more. And there's these, these Gnostic sayings, these things that are too hard for normal people to understand. It's only the super spiritual they ever get to know the, the true things of God. Well, that's not how God's word works. Certainly there are things that are very deep, difficult to understand in some cases, but in the main, God communicates to us to be heard, that we might understand to listen and obey him. Think of Psalm 19, verse 7. We saw this before. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the already very smart. Is that what it says? It says, making wise the simple. So if you feel simple today, and we all do from time to time, we should probably feel simple more than we do. If you feel simple today, the testimony of the Lord is sure, and it will make you wise. 
the authors of the Westminster Confession said this, those things in Scripture which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are also so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. That is, there's not some secret knowledge that you, if, if you have the key to salvation, or is, is not locked away someplace where you can't get it. It's, it's visible, it's obvious in the pages of Scripture. Now, of course, it takes illumination from God's Spirit to do that. It's not just facts on a page, but the information in this book is not so far out of reach that nobody can, can get it. And this is was important in the Reformation, wasn't it? In, in other times where many of the Reformers wanted to bring the Word of God to the people in their own language, so it could be understood. We don't want to take God's Word and, and make it so it's in another language that nobody understands. If I were up here, up here and, and speaking to you in German, not that my German's any good, but it wouldn't be easy to understand, especially if it was Latin or something that, that really nobody, except very learned people know nowadays, you would be as ignorant as, ignorant as when you came in. You wouldn't know what God's Word is saying. So we want to make sure that we can have the words of God in the language we understand. We also want to make sure that when we're explaining things, we explain it clearly. And that's part of what we do when we exegete Scripture, is to explain it to the people as Ezra did, give the meaning, give the sense for those who are listening. But we don't want to make it so um, so sort of high, highfalutin that people cannot understand it. The better we can communicate it, the better people understand it, the, the better that they will be able to apply it and become more like Christ. Now, we do confess, along with the confession... All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. That is, nobody knows everything God's Word says. Nobody understands every question about theology or history, whatever it might be. And yet, the things that we need to know are clear. And we can pursue those things that are harder to understand by God's grace and know them better. But we don't want to say that the things that we need to know are locked away for only the super spiritual to understand. So we've, we've looked briefly, again, we'll look at these each in turn over the coming weeks. Revelation, inspiration, inerrancy, power, authority, clarity, finally, sufficiency. Sufficiency. The Confession, 1689 Confession says this, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. I read that earlier. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And John Piper says it this way, The sufficiency of Scripture means that we don't need any more special revelation. We don't need any more inspired, inerrant words. In the Bible God has given us, we have the perfect standard for judging all other knowledge. Being God's word... The Bible has no authorities over it, and it judges all other authority claims. So if somebody says, I believe this, and it contradicts God's word, we can be gracious about it, but we can say, no, this is what God's word says, we stand on this, and let them take it up with God. Their argument is not with us, 
the argument is with God's word. And we want to be careful as we're discussing things, even debating things, sometimes heatedly, that saying, again, it's not my opinion, this is what God's word says, and I, I believe what God's word says, and if you have a question, if you want to question that, I'm not going to take offense at it, you can take it up with God. Hopefully they'll take it up with God before they stand before his judgment seat. Now, the debate over the sufficiency of Scripture was a key part of the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church claimed authority over scriptural interpretation and also elevated church tradition to the level of Scripture. So they would say, well, who's going to determine what the Scriptures are saying? Well, the Church does. The Roman Catholic Church tells you what the Scriptures mean. Even if their statements contradict the plain reading of Scripture, they will say, well, our authority is such that we can say what this actually means. Certainly, yeah. Yeah, Jesus even said, yeah, you, you take your tradition, your, and your tradition contradicts Scripture. They overrode Scripture with, with the plain meaning of Scripture. Take care of your parents. Honor your parents. Oh, sorry, I have this new law that says I don't have to do that anymore. And so, yes, that's exactly what they did. And the Roman Catholic Church has done that and still does that to this day and putting their authority over what Scripture says or adding on to God's word, saying you must also do this in order to be saved or to to be in God's good graces. The Reformers used the Latin term sola scriptura. You've heard that before, Scripture alone, to explain their belief that they need believe no doctrine that is not contained in Scripture and all other teaching and authority must submit itself to Scripture. So if I stand up here, or Tom, or Brett, or anybody who's in this pulpit, and they say something that is just their opinion. I try to be careful about that. If I have an opinion, I might say it's my opinion. Or if I'm teaching about some question of history or theology, as I'm looking, say, in the Gospels, there's uncertainty. I will say, I think this is likely the case, or these are the different ideas. But I don't want to say, thus says the Lord, when I can't stand directly on what God's Word says. And I know that Tom and Brett are the same way. And God forbid I get up here and start talking about my views on politics or finances or whatever it might be. Again, my opinions don't have any weight if I'm not standing on God's word. Maybe I can talk to you about my opinions at the lunch table or whatever it might be. You can ask me about those, but I'm not going to stand here in the pulpit and say, thus says the Lord, God's authority, this is how you must believe about certain things that aren't part of what God's word is teaching us. Now today, sadly, many will say they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that is, it's sufficient for all we need as God's people. Their belief is contradicted when they emphasize, say, marketing techniques or psychology or or words from the Lord they get. How are we going to reach out to our to our, our city, our community, our, our nation. How are we going to preach the gospel? Well, we can look at the book of Acts and see how the, the apostles did it. Or we could go to a, a marketer and say, well, this is how we sell soft drinks. This is how we sell cars. Why don't we try to use those techniques to help sell the gospel, to sell our church? How are we going to change people's hearts? Are we going to use the latest psychological methods? Are we going to follow the world's ideas about what's sin and what is it, what isn't? 
or are we going to go to God's word and, and trust that God's word will be used by God's spirit to transform hearts and lives? There are many, well, many people who want to help God out in a lot of these areas, but God doesn't need our help, does he? I mean, we do his work in his way. We don't need to innovate these, these secular things. We can just preach God's word and ask him to, to cause the growth as we faithfully proclaim his message. Well, I think I'll stop there for now, and we'll, again, dig into these a little more in coming weeks. Any questions or comments before we close? Um, I would uh, agree with that statement, but some people use that as a way to escape what God's word says. So it's true that the inerrancy discussion does not really have anything to do with the, the English Bibles. Paul didn't write in English, but some people use that to sidestep things and say, well, if only the original manuscripts are inspired, that means I can kind of cast doubt in everything else that comes. So what we want to do, and this, this is part of not what I myself do because I don't have the techniques or the, the talent to do this, but people who, who know the Greek, who know the Hebrew, who have access to old manuscripts, they can look at, at the manuscripts that are much closer to the originals, sometimes comparing ones. And we'll look at this more in coming weeks. How, how do you do this sort of analysis? But looking at these Greek manuscripts, and they're different sometimes. How do we get closer to what God's word actually is. And there's sometimes some questions about that. Somebody has said that this idea of determining what the original uh, manuscript was is not a case where we have a, a puzzle, a thousand piece puzzle with 900 pieces. We have a thousand piece puzzle with maybe a thousand and ten pieces. We're trying to figure out which are the right pieces to fit in certain places. Um, If you're honestly looking at understanding better what the original manuscript might be, that's one thing. But if you're using it to sort of throw throw dust, a cloud of dust in the air to to, uh, to make things uncertain, to to cast doubt on God's word, we can say with great confidence that the word we have in English, the, the, the many translations we have in English, represent the the meaning of God's word. Um, and so God can teach us through those things. So we, we say something, Brett.
Yeah. Yeah, but the nice thing is, in English anyway, we have a, a plethora of riches. So even if, like I said before, the NIV translates something more literally, surprisingly, you can read the NIV and still see the gospel there. You can read any English translation I know of and, and see the gospel there. There might be some some differences and shades of meaning and some difficulties that come about. Some are better than others, in my opinion. But it's not as though we have one English version that says something completely different in terms of, the, say, the doctrine of God or the, the, the way to salvation. And so we, we have that grace from God in our English Bibles. We probably have too many English versions, but it's, it's good to, to compare them. Because you can't, you can't really easily compare 20 versions all the time. Yeah. Yeah, so we could say that the manuscripts are inspired, but we can still, with good authority, from a good English translation, say, thus says the Lord, and feel confident in that, and not feel like we have to shy away and say, well, if somebody sort of throws that back at us, say, well, it's not the original, or this is a better translation, maybe it is, but for the most part, those discussions are just academic and meant to uh, deny what God is saying, really cast down what God's saying. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, I think in the main that's true. We don't want to discount scholarship, especially believing scholarship that's very important, but that's going to help fill in our knowledge, you know, maybe not getting us from zero to 100, but maybe getting us from 90 to 95 and better. We, we still, as as believers, ordinary believers who have some intelligence and can can read English or, or hear, understand English, we, we can, uh, as, who was it, Bunyan talked about having a, the boy who walks behind a plow, know more of Scripture than the greatest minds of England because they just read it and they meditate on it and prayerfully apply it. And maybe they don't have the sophistication to say, well, the the Hebrew says this or the Greek says that, but they can see the plain words in English and get really close to their true meaning. Yeah. I think that's 
yeah, we, we can't let supposed authorities uh, push us around either, as, as you say, or try to take their knowledge of a particular field have anything to do with what they know about scripture. Lots of scientists will say, contradict scripture, they'll say, well, we know the Bible can't mean this, but they don't really have the, the, the authority or the understanding to say such things, but they think they do. No, it's not. It's not the first English version. It actually builds on several other English versions. Um, it's it's a good translation. There there are a number of people. I would say most people don't use King James anymore. But there are certain there's a certain group of people who says King James version is the inspired English version, and we should use that one and no other. And any, anything else is a compromise. Without getting into a lot of details, um, it was written uh, 400 years ago. It it's a, was a good translation at the time. They didn't have as many Greek and Hebrew manuscripts as we have today. There's a lot of light can be shed. Sometimes there are actual uh, inaccurate translations in the King James, and that's not a slight on the King James translators. They did a great job. But the work of a translation is never finished. And so as we we get closer and closer to what we understand those manuscripts to be, uh, language changes, so words that we see in the King James Version don't mean the same thing anymore. Um, like, suffer the children coming to me. When I read that as a child, suffering, what a suffering involves pain. <laughs> I don't want to suffer children. <laughs> suffering children are, are, is bad. Well, you learn that suffer means to allow, but we don't use that word anymore. If somebody said, um, to use the word suffer in that case, uh, in modern English, people would wonder what you're talking about. They wouldn't understand. And so we want to make the English translation clear to people, but not necessarily diluting its meaning, but to, from time to time anyway, have better translations or, or that more accurately express the truth of God's word in, in English, because English doesn't stay still. And I think the translators of the King James Version would be the, the first ones to say that. But there are people today who, who try and impose some sort of rigid, um, uh, sort of cast in concrete. You can't change the King James Version because they're changing God's very word. Well, we would never say that about any English translation. Um, so, yeah, sure.
Yeah, and I resist the temptation to go on and on about this because it's interesting to me. There's no such thing as a right English translation. Um, They're written in Hebrew and Greek. They weren't written in English. So translators have tried their best to give us a good translation. NIV is a good translation. It's not as as good as I might like. I like the New American Standard. There are other recent ones as well for different reasons. But there are, if you compare them side by side, they're very similar. I've done this exercise. It's interesting. On my computer, if you don't care about this, you can just tune out for two minutes. But you, you actually can see, you click on a verse and, and you compare translations and it will show them side by side and it actually shows the percentage difference. It, can, it looks at the English words and a lot of the translations are 80%, 50% the same, even in English. And so it's not like they're so widely different where the NIV is so far off and only the New American Standard or the English Standard Version is exactly right. Um, so we want to be really careful of saying that uh, the NIV is garbage or whatever, it, it, because it's not. It's it's men. Yeah. Now there there are some translations that'll do things like they'll want to take the gender of God out of whatever. So and and that kind of stuff is giving into translation. Uh, Practices that we don't, we don't, we would want to go there. Those are definitely a step too far. But in other cases, it, it's, it can be a matter of preference, which is easier to understand. Which is, for example, people who are English as a second language, it may be really hard for them to read New American Standard. I'd rather have them read the NIV than struggle with the more difficult English translation if they can understand God's Word better. Um, but. If I'm going to preach, I want to preach from NASB, and that's my preference, and I won't go into all the reasons why right now. But there, as I said, we have a lot of really good English translations, and it's it's a matter of, in many cases, of of preference, uh, not a matter of real great substance in most cases. Yes, John Wycliffe um, had, had the first one, but he translated from the Latin. He was not a scholar in Greek and Hebrew. And so he had the, the Vulgate, and so he translated into English at that time in the 1300s, which was different even from the English of of the King James time, which is a couple hundred years later. This was at a time when English was still being sort of figured out. And so that was, I think it was Middle English at that point. And then you have um, William Tyndale, who was an expert in the Hebrew and uh, the the Greek, and so he, he built on Wycliffe's, but he he knew the the, the root languages better, and so the King James, uh, well, there's the great the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible came in before that even, and the Geneva Bible was an English Bible who was done in Geneva because of persecution. They they kicked out a lot of the evangelical we call them reformers. They were in Geneva. They created this one of the first study Bibles. So they translated as well as putting a bunch of things, some not so kind to the King of England, which is why he didn't want it there. But they would take so that Geneva Bible that was all before the King James versions. There were several really scholarly good translations of God's Word into English of the time, even before the King James came around. 
1611. I'm not sure if they, I thought they finished it, but maybe they haven't, but, yeah. Okay. Good. We should probably stop there. We're running very late. Sorry about that. I, I, I would just go on and I have to apologize to Tom. We could probably talk until noon about this stuff, but let's put a pin in it for now and we'll talk more about it as, as weeks go on. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your sure word. We thank you that you have communicated to us, not just in creation, but in your word and your son. We need salvation. We need sanctification. And your word is able to make us wise to salvation. It's able to train us in righteousness. And may it do its work even now as we go into this worship service, as Tom preaches. May you drive these things deep into our hearts that we might follow you and know you better. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.